Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, depending on your time zone. Today we have a distinguished guest from Australia, so we're going to be talking from locations all over the globe. Today's program is uh, the second in a series of archaeological organizations and uh, people who are involved in archaeology, just as they are in many other vocations and professions, uh, have their own professional organizations where they come together on national, regional, and in this case, international bases. And uh, one of the most exciting organizations that the archaeological field has right now is the World Archaeology Conference. And uh, I am very, very happy to have two uh, major uh, officials of that organization, Dr. Claire Smith and Dr. Ann Pyburn. A little bit of biography of of our two distinguished guests. Uh, Dr. Smith is the president of the World Archaeological Congress and a professor at Flinders University in Australia. She received her Ph.D. in archaeology at the University of New England in 1996. She's the recipient of the Australian Research Council Postdoctoral Fellowship. She's held a Fulbright postdoc at the Smithsonian Institution and was a visiting scholar at universities in South Africa and the USA, including Columbia University and here in New York. Uh, Dr. Smith has authored, co-authored, and co-edited nine books and more than 40 refereed articles in English, Spanish, Catalan, and Japanese. Her research interests include the impact of the Northern Territory emergency response on Aboriginal identity in the Barunga region and an analysis of the possession and distribution of Gajuri knowledge and how this articulates with the notions of identity, heritage, and land use. My second guest, Dr. Ann Pyburn, whom I've worked with in the past, is a professor of anthropology at Indiana University and a vice president of the World Archaeological Congress. She received her MA and PhD in anthropology at the University of Arizona in, uh, in the 1980s. And she's currently a director of the Center for Archaeology in the Public Interest the Chow Hicks Project in Belize and is the principal investigator of a uh, major educational reform project called The Matrix. She authored, co-authored, and co-edited numerous books and articles including Ungendering Civilization, Reinterpreting the Archaeological Record, and Prehistoric Maya Community and Settlement in Belize. Uh, I want to thank you both for appearing on the program. Let me start with you, Dr. Smith. Uh, let, let me try to establish how you came to uh, take this position at the World Archaeology Congress, how it evolved in terms of your own professional career and experience. Okay. Um, so, thanks, Joe. Um, and Pyburn was, uh, was with me at the time, and, um, you know, you have to stand, you have to be elected. And I had helped organize, I was the second in charge organizing the Fifth World Archaeological Congress, which was in Washington, D.C. 
Um, and it happened at the same time that we were kind of, that, well, that Australia, America and Britain were invading Iraq, so there was quite controversial at the time about having a conference in Washington in the same month. Um, and part of that was, you know, people's views on different things. But the fact that we did that um, meant that I was, people had some faith that I um, could deliver or would work hard uh, for the organisation. So I was elected then. I, at the time, I was the youngest person to be elected and president and the first woman. Um, and I've held that post now for, I've been elected twice um, for 10 years. And the new executive is coming in in January 2014, and I will have a holiday then. Okay. And how did you get involved with the organization? You know, I don't really remember. Um, as I <laughs> have become more interested in um, the social context of archaeology um, and, and the political repercussions of archaeology, I've become more interested in um, the international uh, aspects of the field um, and how um, archaeological research um, relates to global issues. Um, so I guess maybe to some extent that interest led me especially to be interested in the way archaeology is practiced um, in, in different parts of the world. And um, the, the obvious organization, if you're interested in world archaeology, is the World Archaeological Congress. And many of the people that I've met and admired most um, were involved in the Congress. Um, um, people like um, Meg Conti and Joan Giro um, and um, Claire Smith. So their interest got me interested. Well, I, I think that uh, one of the most intriguing elements of the World Archaeological Congress is the fact that it brings together so many diverse perspectives on archaeology, and I don't think there's another forum like it. Um, if you were to summarize where it's where it it start, how it started, and how it's evolved, and what the directions you see in terms of world archaeology, can you uh, provide a little bit of your own perspective on how the World Archaeological Congress sort of fashions that perspective, and 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 what its what its objective is in in bringing together all these diverse people? Uh, Claire. Oh, sorry. I, uh, I thought that might be that was for Anne. Um, it started um, in 1986-87 as um, in to do with as a kind of reaction to to the apartheid in South Africa. So uh, there was, you know, that was kind of critical to the the genesis of the organisation. So it's always been dealing with political global issues. Um, it's an academic organisation in the sense that there are, you know, scholars. We have, you know, many scholars, thousand people on our on our list. You know, most of them would be um, scholars. But um, there's also members of the public. There's also people who work in consulting. It's changed. It changes. I think the most interesting thing for me is that the World Archaeological Congress has changed. I, I first I went to the first conference that I went to was in India in 1994. And in that, since then, I've seen a lot of changes from within because it really is driven by, from the grassroots. So it's organised so that people from all around the world have representation, elected representation. Um, we have, you know, one, um, you know, one person, one voice from the, on the council, one voice from North America, uh, from America, one from Canada, then another, others from other parts of the world. So it can't be 
dominated by Anglo voices. It really is global in, in the statutes and in the council, the way it's set up. And what do you think? Yes, I think a, a lot of the important changes are due directly to your own efforts. Um, Dr. Smith has worked tirelessly and very energetically for the eight years that she's been in the driver's seat to um, do what was necessary to bring as much diversity and as many different voices as possible to the table um, because um, the developed world um, has had um, the most resources to invest in archaeology. Um, um, people in uh, Europe and the States um, and Australia um, have had um, kind of um, control of um, archaeology, um, and very few other countries um, have been wealthy enough um, to um, support uh, archaeological research and archaeological science, which is actually quite an expensive um, endeavor. involves a lot of people, and nowadays a lot of uh, complicated and expensive equipment. Um, and if you're going to be involved in a global conversation, that means that you have to be able to travel. Um, which is also expensive. Um, uh, and it's also true that it's not only archaeologists that are interested in archaeology. When you're talking about heritage, many different kinds of people are interested in heritage, um, their own heritage in particular. Um, and thanks to the efforts of the Congress, um, and especially to Claire Smith's efforts, um, a lot of different people with different kinds of interest in heritage, not just archaeologists, have begun have been invited and brought into the conversation about world heritage um, and about um, the future of the field. Um, so, um, our, um, but the World Archaeological Congress definitely had its birth in a political um, uh, context in which um, two organizations were formed out of one as a result of the decision of part of the membership to support um, the, the ban on um, scholars from South Africa in support of apartheid. Um, uh, the decision was made by Peter Ucko, who has um, uh, been a leader, um, and the result has been the World Archaeological Congress, which has been from its inception an, a very self-consciously political organization. And this is interesting. So to a large degree, the organization took, has its roots in a political situation. And you're discussing a context in which uh, obviously the, uh, the direction of the profession has changed to some degree. And the increased involvement of uh, people in third world nations are getting a, a more sophisticated and a, 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 more, a more dynamic um, position in the organization. Have you seen these types of trends mirrored in where archaeology is going generally, or do you think that the World Congress is reflecting um, how, how things are developing in the profession in terms of, of sort of uh, being more representative of what archaeology is doing in the world? Claire? Um, for me, Joe? Yes. No, I think, and I think Anne um, would agree, that WAC is unique in this respect. And we're unique because we've put in place systems that mean that people from all around the world can have a voice. So 
we have a list server on archaeology and cultural heritage, and you know, I invite all your um, members to go to the WAC homepage, World Archaeological Homepage, and join that and be part of this conversation that we have. We have three thousand people on it, and that you, people from India, from Botswana, from Argentina, from Colombia, everybody can have an equal voice on that. It doesn't matter where you're from, your voice can go out there as equally as anybody else's voice. So it's not, um, you know, it's not just for Anglo people. People sometimes um, post in different languages as well. That's the other thing that's really, you know, important, that not everybody speaks English and some of the best ideas in the world are actually thought up in German or Spanish or French or Hindi or Arabic, actually. So if you want to get those best ideas, you have to facilitate translating all the, all the capacity, a, a system whereby those ideas can go forward. And that's where WAC is really, um, you know, we've been really um, active in doing this. And I don't know of any other organisation that has made the efforts. No, there, there just truly isn't. I mean, it sounds like you're, you know, spiting is the word we use in Australia. And that's a very bad thing to do. But, and is there anyone that has made any, made any efforts like we have? No, I think WAC is absolutely unique. Um, it has a very important role um, in the discipline of archaeology um, and um, in in the world um, in many ways because um, WAC um, confronts political issues um, in in ways that reach beyond um, um, a, a merely academic perspective. But I will say uh, um, another way of looking at Joe's question um, is whether or not what's happening in the World Archaeological Congress reflects some things that are happening in the wider discipline. And I do think that that's true, although yes. perhaps WAC isn't so much reflecting as it is um, leading the way. But I believe that all over the world, um, archaeologists have come to the realization that archaeology is not just an, an, an esoteric pastime. But that what we say about the past, what we what we use our science to claim about heritage, has very important repercussions for living people, and that um, not only do we need to acknowledge that, we need to try to take some responsibility for the results of the things that we do and the, the way that we say them, um, which means that archaeology is becoming progressively more collaborative everywhere. And I would say that that's the case um, more so outside of the United States, although um, an understanding of the importance of, of collaboration among different perspectives in order to get at a more objective version of reality is also sinking in um, to the United States. I was just uh, came this last weekend from a conference at the Amaranth Foundation in Arizona, where we talked about archaeology and activism, um, where a group of archaeologists were talking about um, marshalling an understanding of heritage in order to actually address um, political inequalities and social justice in the present. So that's a fairly new development in the United States. It's a little bit more well-established in some parts of South America, in Europe, and I believe in Australia. Um, I'm going to have to. We're going to have to take a break here for a minute, but we're certainly going to go back to you and uh, discuss and develop that theme at greater length when we get back after these words.
news, opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Zoom Leadership. It's the big picture issues of the day, up close and personal capabilities of leadership, and a desirable future of constant renewal. Zoom Leadership. It's the economic crisis made clear, patterns and perspectives of leadership, and the importance of changing the way we pursue our future. Join host John Schmidt every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Zoom Leadership. An inside look at what's really going on in business, government, and civil society. Tune in every week on the Voice America Business Channel. What are some of the issues that kids face every day? You'll find out when you tune into the appropriately named Today's Kids. Your hosts are here to open the doors to a forum of all kinds of issues. Nothing is off the table here, and because it's on the Voice America Kids channel, you know you're getting a kid's perspective. Tune in every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for Today's Kids. Your hosts will lead this forum of engaging conversation on Voice America Kids. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Yeah, we've uh, we've had a couple of technical glitches here in this broadcast, but I want to extend my apologies to uh, my very special guests, Dr. Claire Smith and Dr. Ann Byburn, who are uh, representing the World Archaeological Congress. And we were in the midst of talking about how trends in archaeology have changed since the 1980s, and where the Archeo- uh, World Archaeological Conference Congress rather has stood in terms of pioneering some of these trends. And and you were discussing. Uh, how how these changes are occurring and how uh, collaborative efforts in international archaeology are probably accelerated in many other parts of the world and possibly uh, we're playing catch up here in North America and Western Europe in trying to do that. Can you uh, expand on that a little bit? I was going to um, um, make a slightly broader point. Um, there's a, an American philosopher of science named Sandra Harding 
um, who um, has recently um, written and said that um, because we know now from um, people who study the, the culture of science that um, culture influences science, that the culture of scientists uh, has an effect on what they find out and how they see the world, and because of that, she says the future of science in general is collaborative, that she's argued that in order to be um, 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 more objective, the only way to do that is to have people from very different backgrounds and very different perspectives and different ideas about science to come together to talk um, um, about um, uh, a particular topic. And then she said, much to my shock, that the science that's leading the way in collaborative research is archaeology. So um, I think that um, we're looking at a, at a, a philosophical change um, in the world that goes beyond um, um, archaeology itself, but that uh, in, in which archaeology is um, doing something very important to, to change the world. <laughs> and, and that's a critical point. My question to you now, though, would be, do we have sort of a universal definition of what science is? what archaeology and science are together, how they relate to one another, because there are different visions of archaeology all over the world, and how successful can we be in trying to bring some kind of consensus or to develop a model on how science and archaeology relate to each other and what the various visions of archaeology are in different parts of the world. Obviously, bringing in a lot of international people will create a tremendous amount of uh, opinion and discourse. Where do you see this moving, Dr. Smith? Um, look, I think that what's most interesting, and I'm, I'm sure Anne would, would agree, that it's not one archaeology or one um, connection between science and the humanities. It's really going in many, many different ways. So archaeology today is, goes from things as scientific as um, analysing ochre and working out where it came from to work out trade routes um, to working with indigenous communities to try and get them to protect their cultural heritage or teach um, or even learn life skills, using cultural heritage to learn life skills so people can get employment. So the kind of archaeology um, that's engaged with social, political, cultural, economic issues of the um, the community is, is certainly one direction that um, I'm moving in myself and that I see happening um, uh, in different parts of the world. And the more you involve, the more you work with normal local people, just ordinary people, the more... Everybody's got ideas. We're all homo sapiens sapiens. So we're all smart. And if you listen to other people's ideas, then that will change your ideas and it will change how you do it. And the world is so diverse, so different. The values are so different around the world that wherever archaeology is informed by local ideas, it's going to be a little bit different, and sometimes quite different, to 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 um, uh, to in another place in the world. And the uh, the example I gave my class yesterday about cultural difference was because um, we've just come back from Jordan, from you know the world seventh world archaeological congress in Jordan, and I spent two months there um, helping to organise the conference and you know tours and things. And I said to my class, "How many of you eat everything on your plate?" And so many hands went up. You know, a good lot, but not all of them. And then I said, how many of you feel that you have to eat 
everything on your plate, but you're not, not doing the right thing if you don't. And all the hands went up in my class. Uh-huh. And I said, well, clearly, none of, none of you are Arabic because in Arabic countries, it's important to have so much food, for, for guests in particular, so if they eat everything, you haven't been honourable. So you have to give people so much food that they can't, cannot positively... So our idea of being polite, trying to eat everything, their idea of being polite, giving you so much so that, so that you can... Um, that they've been a generous host, are, are quite an opposite. And in Spain, the idea is um, something for shame. The last thing has to be left on the plate for shame. So it's shameful to take the last thing off the plate. So that's somewhere in between the two, the two kind of extremes of this. So those, our cultures, the world is so different. And what I love about, about, about the world is actually learning. You know, archaeologists travel through time and try and understand what's happened in the past in other cultures, in other times and places. But you can do that as well today by just understanding and getting to know other people. Well, let me let me throw another question at you, Anne. I know this is something that you've been very involved in. We're seeing uh, we, we're seeing certainly in the training of archaeologists a, a, a certain amount of change, um, wherein uh, the traditional academic models of archaeological education are sort of starting to diverge from from what they used to be. And certainly there is uh, a trend at this point to be more practical in terms of how we train archaeologists. And secondly, from what you, you're both saying, there's a sort of a rekindled interest in, in anthropological concepts, as, as Claire was pointing out, understanding cultural diversity as, as, as a major issue in, in really uh, figuring out how archaeology has to move to the future. Where do you see archaeological training going, and how do you see the diversity in archaeological training, say, in the West versus other developing countries? Um, is this Anne? Yeah, this is directed towards Anne. I was I was hoping you were going to direct it towards Claire because that's a very complicated question. <laughs> oh um, no no give us give I, I us a that, shot. I think that um, the the way that um, archaeology education is handled is still very nationalist. That different nations still have um, very different ways of approaching um, education um, in the U.S. As you know the vast majority of archaeology, and, and actually all over the world, the vast majority of archaeology is not um, uh, controlled by the academy. It's not just motivated um, in, in acad- an academic context, and it's not done simply to answer an, an esoteric scholarly question. Right. Um, most archaeology um, is directly related to um, the preservation of material culture that um, is going to be lost through development, and um, the preservation of data that uh, are going to be lost as a result of development. Um, and that's true all over the world. And uh, as a result of that, um, it's become necessary for archaeologists to um, be trained um, very pragmatically um, to be able to, um, to, to gather and preserve evidence of the past, from the past, uh, as efficiently as possible. Um, 
there's much too much archaeology ever to do, ever to recover, and certainly ever to store if we could dig it all up. <laughs> no place to put what we've dug up already. Um, so um, archaeological training has become much more pragmatic as a result of realization all over the world that um, development, practices of development, um, um, while necessary and important, are having a very serious impact on our archaeological records of the past. Um, so, yes, there is a move toward um, pragmatism. Um, I, I argue, on the other hand, against um, the tendency to um, just create a kind of a bifurcated field in which you have the people who do archaeology on the one hand and the people who think about archaeology on the other hand, as though it were possible to um, 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 approach an archaeological excavation um, simply on the basis of visible material culture. Um, when in reality, um, when you decide to do archaeological research, you have to choose among an infinite amount of data. Um, uh, and that choice... Um, needs to be based on um, experience, um, on cultural information, and on theory. Um, so I don't think that theory and practice um, should be uh, and can um, ethically be separated. Um, that doesn't mean that um, the training of archaeologists all, all over the world can't benefit from um, increased pragmatism. Um, uh, archaeology um, in its inception um, was a field that was um, mostly in the hands of very wealthy people who were pursuing a hobby um, or who were collecting things. Um, and that's very different from what archaeology is today. Well, you bring a, a fascinating point up, uh, and doc, I'm interested in Dr. Smith's perspective on this in particular, because we here in the States uh, do archaeology under an anthropological umbrella, certainly in the traditional way that we train our students to do that. I'm interested in how it's done in Australia and how you see that traditional model of archaeology being as part of anthropology or, or really sort of losing its meaning. I think we're starting to question that, quite frankly, uh, as Anne said, as the pragmatic element becomes more and more prominent. How is archaeology relating to anthropology in a training program in Australia, and how do you see it in a broader context in other parts of the world, Dr. Smith? Okay. Um, well, the American four-field tradition, um, and I, I've taught in, at Columbia University for a year as well, so I've taught within that system, um, and that does, that's not how it works in Australia. We really follow uh, the UK model. We, we were colonised by Britain, so we basically follow the Brits, although there's a lot of American influence today, I must say. Um, so archaeology departments aren't associated with anthropology departments at all. They're in totally... Um, so my university has an archaeology department, but there's an anthropology department in Adelaide at another university, and we would rarely talk. Uh, we rarely meet, but anthropological ideas we draw on as part of our interpretations because it broadens the field of how, you, you know, the, the ideas that you can take to understanding the past. You know, you just, you need to broaden your ideas, not just have it within your own head. Um, but certainly we just are straight, we do straight archaeological training um, following the Brits. 
um, what we do do, the biggest trend here, and I'm seeing it coming out, I'm seeing it start in China, not surprisingly, necessarily, uh, as well. But certainly in Australia, we've had um, a big boom, a mining boom, the thing that saved us from the global recession. So we, I think we, I might be, I think we're the only country that wasn't affected by, didn't actually have a recession. Uh, and that's because we just dig up a lot of dirt and send it to other countries and they pay us money for it. Um, but that dirt has iron ore in it. And, yeah. Right. Uh, and mostly it goes to China. But archaeo- there's an enormous boom for archaeologists, archaeologists' employment here in the mining industry. And students here get a lot of, like, the Australian-American dollar is pretty comparable at the moment. And my honours students go out and they get six to $900 a day for consulting. And they're just four-year degree. But they're not working all the time. They might work for three weeks and then they might have no work for three weeks. So, you know, it's not, you know, it's not, not all roses. But So we've developed, at Flinders University in particular, we've developed this graduate program for cultural heritage and archaeology that really is getting people prepared and trained for working in development. And that's a big, um, has been a big success here. Um, and we have, you know, lots of mining, you know, partners and consulting companies and so on. Um, and it means that people are properly trained to actually go out and do what they have to do in a development environment. I can see China is starting to show some interest there. Shandong University, um, I'm working with them at the moment and we're, you know, developing something there. Um, different countries have different expertise. Japan has like 7,000 people employed in archaeology. Yeah, um, and most, a lot of those people aren't archaeologists. They're people who, whose job is to put pots back together. So you work as a kind of technician to do that. Um, they've got conveyor belts at archaeological sites that move the dirt. You, know, you don't have people lugging, um, lugging big buckets of, of dirt. It's just put on the conveyor belt and it goes up and so on. Um, so in terms of training, we certainly are very conscious of training people to get a job. But as Anne said, they've got to have the theoretical tools and they've got to have the thinking, the, you know, the imaginative exploration as part of their, their studies in order to be able to, um, to do a good job and to enjoy it as well, I think. I think that one of the problems that we have here in the States is the theoretical baselines for archaeology or what are being uh, promoted in the university systems, and the practical element of it is sort of picked up along the way. One of the problems, I mean, I'm in applied field myself, and I'm seeing that we simply cannot afford to train people in the practical aspects of archaeology any longer because time is money, and uh, you sort of have to have a certain set of skills once you're going into the professional community and actually have to find a job. Uh, and I was curious as to your perspective on that. How are we going to reorient our programs to make both aspects of, a, of it, the theoretical baselines and the methodological and practical aspects of it, catch up with, uh, with what Dr. Uh, Smith is saying is a, apparently a, a more uh, dominant trend in, in most world training programs? I, I think that the role of, of anthropology in archaeology now, um, from my perspective, is not so much as an aid to interpreting the past, although, of course, we still use it that way. But I think that um, the realization that archaeology 
um, comes out of and contributes to um, culture in the present um, is what makes it incumbent upon archaeologists to have some understanding of the anthropology of their own world and um, to be able to have enough ethnographic expertise to really understand how what they're doing um, in a local community um, or with a descendant community, um, what kind of what kind of effects they're having. Um, so um, for me, um, uh, anthropological training um, has to do with being responsible in the political present for the things that archaeologists do when they go into communities and uh, um, uh, delve into um, other people's heritage. Um, I think that we need to um, to rethink um, um, some of the ways that um, we teach um, uh, students and figure out um, um, some ways to um, reconnect theory to practice. Um, in uh, Western philosophical tradition, there's this mind-body dualism that um, I think in, inflects the way that archaeologists are trained, um, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, in the United States now, we've known for a long time that the, the master's degree is the professional degree and that the Ph.D. is a teaching degree. But what we haven't done is, uh, well, well, we've begun to, to pay attention to um, the professionalization of our master's students we haven't paid enough attention to teaching our Ph.D. students how to teach. <laughs> so um, that, I think, um, is an avenue um, uh, that needs to be um, 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 worked, reworked, and, and reconceived. Um, because um, in practice, in the real world, there isn't a difference between um, what you think and what you do. Um, and um, so I, I think um, the design of some new kinds of, uh, of new kinds of courses is uh, in order. I don't think I'm going to bore you with any with the details of those, um, but I have been thinking about proposing um, uh, a new kind of uh, master's program here um, at Indiana University that takes a little longer um, than a regular MA, but not nearly as long as a PhD. Oh, that, that sounds interesting. Yeah, it really does. I guess the question I have is, are we going to start seeing, or, or are you recommending, either one of you can take this, uh, a, an influx of people who actually have worked in the applied world uh, moving into the, uh, ped the, the, the sector of pedagogy and, and uh, uh, insert uh, become part of faculties when they bring to the table now uh, decades of experience in the practical world of archaeology, do we see that change happening in terms of refashioning programs, even at the Ph.D. level? Um, no, because, because the academy doesn't pay as well. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, look, it's, it's, it, but it, it, it's a function of, of uh, people uh, having whatever, let's assume that they made their money or established their professional credentials and, and are, are getting sort of the latter portions of their careers, and they go back into the academy that way because they have messages to impart. It's done in many fields. 
um, when people retire, say, from government service or from private industry, uh, they feel like they want to impart that information to students, and they go into university settings. It's not traditionally been done in archaeology, but I see where it can. Um, oh, it certainly should be. I think that's a wonderful idea. Uh, Dr. Smith? Well, the last couple of appointments we've made in our department have been young people, um, but they've been young people who had, and they had to have, um, consulting experience in order to get the job. So they, they were teaching into our graduate programs, which are in teaching people to be consultants, really. Um, so if they didn't have that, you know, one of them had 10 years' experience, um, so young to me, you know, he's 35 or something. Uh, and uh, they've been wonderful teachers. They've been a real success. Um, they're still young enough so that they're connecting with students. They've got lots of energy and so on and want to do lots of things um, and want to build a career, so they're publishing. Uh, but also they have that very practical knowledge of if you're working with, say, in some parts there might be many groups, in one part of New South Wales, um, in Hunter Valley, there's like 23 different Aboriginal groups claiming a particular relationship with a particular side. Now, how you make a decision about that side is just scary. You know, working your way through that process. Having a couple of groups having uh, uh, claiming one side is quite normal. Um, having fracture within groups, too. So that practical experience of working with Aboriginal groups is essential to be able to teach people how to do it. The other thing that we're doing, and we're, and we're doing this as well with the undergraduates, um, is we're having a, a lot more field schools. So um, in July, I take, I'll take 20 or 30 students to Barunga in the Northern Territory, which is a remote Aboriginal community. You normally need a permit to get there. Um, Quite and we can't. There's no, there are no accommodation. Town is a long way away. You bring your food, uh, and they'll be working for the community. So they'll be doing some archaeology. They'll be looking at some rock art and so on. But they'll be re- producing things for the community as well. Maybe a poster. Maybe um, some information for the school. Um, but by actually living on Aboriginal land, like living in a, a reservation, you actually. Um, understand that you're visiting somebody else's country, so that's important in terms of the... And we're talking about the anthropology and the politics of the present. Um, And that gives people a practical experience for when they have to go out and work with other groups. Um, And on on that note, I'm afraid I'm going to have to end the program. We're running up against the clock. Um, I want to express my heartfelt thanks to uh, Dr. Claire Smith, and Dr. Ann Pyburn for participating in the program. Uh, Archaeology is going through a lot of changes, just like many other professions in the world, and these are two of the pioneers who are moving it in the direction of positive change. Thank you so much for uh, listening. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith and Dr. Pyburn, for participating, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.